the optimal life. Welcome to the show, girl dad. Hey, good to be here, Nate. We have something in common right off the bat. We both have three daughters. Well, you're a blessed man. You're outnumbered as well. It's amazing, isn't it? Did you did you want to have a son? I mean, most men do. As you're going through those three pregnancies, was it like, okay, after the first girl, I hope the second one's a boy, and then after the second girl, all right, come on, third time's a charm. Yeah, yeah, it, it was like it was like that. I was thinking boys all along, but when I had the third one, I realized I didn't really want a boy because I, first of all, I didn't know what to do with a boy, and secondly, I, I realized that with three girls. Um, I have a unique role in being the the outsider, and so and so it's it's a it's a lovely lovely place to be. I think. What what about you, Nate? Yeah, I felt the same way. I mean, I I really wanted a son. Um, just always had that vision, and each time though, you end up having these beautiful little princesses that just they just rip right to your the core of your heart. And, uh, and then came the third one. I was like, okay, it's a girl. I mean, I was a little deflated. I'm not going to lie, but boy, I, that I wouldn't trade that girl for anything as you, as you can relate. I will say my fiance now is uh, pregnant. So this will be my fourth child and we're not finding out. So we will see, but you know what? I honestly, at this point in my life, it's a whole different mindset for me. I truly don't care one way or another. I almost wanted to be a girl, almost what like what you just said. We know girls. You know exactly how to take care of girls. You know the feelings. So I can do another one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's something that brings out sort of your manhood when you have girls that, that you're, you you rise up as the protector. Mm. And it's a little bit different because you you intrinsically know that the mom or the grandma or the, or the, the leading lady in the life of, of, of the daughter, it has maybe kind of that primary purpose there. Of, of teaching and coaching, and you know that you're sitting in the background waiting for that opportunity to be the protector. That's that's the way I love about being a girl dad. What do you think has changed the most for you since becoming a father? Can you articulate one thing above all the others? Wow, what I, I've never been asked that question. I I would I would have just to take a stab at it. I would have to say it has something to do with my desire to think about myself as a person, a long timeline in, in which that timeline intersects only for a short period of time with my daughters. I think I read something to the effect of we spend 75% of our time with our daughters before they turn 12. And so, and so my, my desire to be more intentional with that time frame with them um, really, really, really increased. And so everything pivoted, my work schedule pivoted, my focus pivoted, my business travel pivoted, everything pivoted uh, to be able to focus on that timeline. I only have two that are that are 12 or under right now. Mm. And so I'm, I'm already past that point with one of them. And so with that one, it's all about making those few lasting moments more impactful. Um, and so I think that there's just been sort of a bifurcated strategy there of the, of the pre-12 versus the post-12 you know, girl, girl, dad relationships. Yeah. And you know, Rick, better than, you know, just as well as anyone else that has kids, especially that are into their teenage years, how fast the first 12 years goes. Cause the days are truly short, but the days are long, but the years are short, excuse me. Um, and it goes by in a blink of an eye, you look at your oldest and you're going, what the, what the hell? So for some new parents that are out there right now, and they're in the thick of it, they're in the diapers, the bottles, the sleepless nights, what, what kind of advice do you have to those folks just as a mindset, an approach to how to look at the current situation that they're in? 
Well, first of all, you've got to think there's some sort of collective wisdom why everyone in the world tells you that it just flies by, right? It's not, it's not that it, it won't fly by for you. It will fly by for you. And time actually accelerates as you get older. Um, and, and so I think that's probably the first thing to treasure your time in the present more than you treasure your time in the past because your time in your present is fleeting more and there's less of it less. Let me just interject real quick before you go. I'm sorry. Uh, You said time accelerates as you get older. Elaborate on what you mean exactly for those that don't understand. Yeah. So, so think about it in terms of percentages of your lifespan. Um, And, and and so, and so if I'm, if I'm going to live to be 80 and I'm 40, I've already lived half my life. And so um, a year is, is really, um, if I'm 50, I'm going to be 100. Let's use easy numbers. I'm a, I'm a real estate guy. 50, I'm going to live to 100. Um, a year when I was zero was 1% of my life, but now it's 2% of my life. And when I'm 75, it will be 3% of my life or more. Um, and, and so it, it's, a, it's a little bit more accelerant in nature. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a fixed type of, of, of quantity. Um, the other thing to think about is, is who we are as people. Um, that is part of the the tragedy, but also the blessing of being a human and that we are we are half dimensional creatures. Right. We we fully encapsulate time and space and, and, and movement. But time. Time is something unique in that we fully occupy, it, but we only have half of it left. Right. We, we've already lost yesterday and all that we have is today and only the hope for tomorrow. And tomorrow is not promised us. All we have is today. And so that that is our strength, but also our weakness that that we have half a dimension remaining, possibly, but only a fraction of that today, which we can we can invest wirelessly. And so we're called to be stewards of today, not opportunistics of, of tomorrow. Mm. What, what, how old are you when you had your first child? Uh, twenty nine. Twenty nine. OK, so you had started your company well before that in your 20s. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And, and what company was that exactly? So we started a, a real estate management company doing sort of everything, everything having to do with kind of the facility itself for, for corp- corporations and, and government clients. Okay. And then you ended up, you started this company with, by yourself or did you have a group of people that were with you? Yeah. Yeah. So I started it in college by myself. My dad helped me a little bit. He was in a uh, corollary industry where they did this for the federal government. And, um, and I, so I broke off and I, I did that in the commercial space only. So we weren't really competing against each other. Did, did your father give you, little... did your father give you a million dollars like Trump's father gave him and then off to the races? <laughs> <laughs> my, my dad was unemployed for, for a good, good point of part of our childhood. Um, okay. and, and so, yeah, yeah, we grew up, we grew up in a two bedroom home. I would imagine that that never... those years looking back during those, those times that were, clearly tough, especially as a child to see your parents struggling. You can't really understand what that means, but you know enough to know this, this hurts. Um, that had to be, that had to be a real motivator for you. Yeah, it was a motivator. And sometimes we're motivated towards what we want to become. And also sometimes we're motivated towards that, which we don't want to become. And I think the struggles and the financial concerns that, that they had would be sort of an inverted motivation for me as I, as I got older, especially as I, as I kind of got out of the entrepreneurial world, more in kind of the stabilized business investment world. So is this company, this company that you scaled in your twenties to, to 400 employees, is this the strat, is this the capital that you own still currently? 
No, it, it's a it's a different company, but it, it's a derivative. And so we we use the predecessor. We, we've done some rebrands over the years. We're the, the predecessor company to that was the one I started, but that we use that company to manage the assets that our strategic capital business strategic uh, owns. Yeah. Yes. And yes. strategic's prime focus. I, I see it's commercial real estate. What what do you guys specialize in? Yeah. So we're focused on the top ten fast growing. U.S. markets, mainly warehousing, retail, and some creative office. We really like historical buildings, uh, really cool, you know, historical renovations, that sort of thing. Uh, we've got some pretty good research behind it that shows that they outperform traditional buildings by a significant margin. And we have, and we have a, a core competency around uh, strategic consulting, uh, strategic negotiations, and, uh, and redesigns. And come on, Rick, uh, 25-year-olds don't know how to scale businesses. So how did Rick Walker at 25 know how to scale his? Through sheer stupidity. I think there's a, there's, there's, there's some great, I know, I know you're a Joe Rogan fan. I, I was listening to uh, one of those interviews a few days ago uh, with, with an IQ special specialist talking about the, the sort of the, the success trajectory, the people at the top end of the, of the IQ um, graph. And I'm, I'm by no means a, a very high IQ, per, high IQ person. I'm sort of a normal person and grew up poor and so I think the things that I was able to do, um, those things in the early on were, were basically happening by accident. Like I didn't have enough money to really fail at it. So I just started trying stuff. And so I was really good at business development. I was willing to go get rejected day in, day out, go, go door to door, cold call everything. And so we we're able to scale pretty, pretty quickly uh, just from that. But it wasn't anything intentional. It was just me knowing that I needed to go sell the services, didn't know how to build a management team, didn't know how to do really anything. And so eventually, 26 years old, found myself with, I remember counting the W-2s that year. And there's, there's an old Jewish thing uh, where God condemns, um, I think it was David, for counting how many people he had in his population. There, like there's something... Um, antithetical to being a, a Judeo-Christian ethic type of person with kind of counting your money or counting your employees, counting your, 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 the members of your army. And so I never really did that, but I was counting the W-2s one year. And I remember I got to 400 and I, there were still some left to count. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. And I was running this thing out of a Starbucks. So I was still doing all the payroll myself. Mm. I was still doing all the management myself. I had some supervisors, things like that, but I just didn't know how to scale an organization properly. And so, um, so we took it from there, started learning. God put some some really great advisors in my path over the over the coming years, and and so we took it from there. What did you enjoy most? I'm gonna get this is a dual part question. First part: What did you enjoy most about being the founder, building the business, scaling the business? Kind of what we talked about. What what did you enjoy throughout that process? And, and what was the most uh, benign and difficult thing that you had to deal with that you go, ah, this is really a thorn in my side. Can you, anything like that? Yeah. So I knew, I knew that my superpower, my superpower still is I'm really good at failing. I make a lot of mistakes and they just, it just doesn't bother me. I'm willing to embarrass myself and try different business strategies. And it just doesn't bother me as much as it would normal people. And so if I have that as my superpower and 99% of the population is not willing to put themselves out there, I know that I've got a strategic advantage that my competitors probably do not have. And so that's what I found myself doing. That's why the door-to-door -door work when no one else wants to do door-to-door. -door. That's why cold calling works because no one else wants to cold call. And so- Let me just ask you, Rick. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me just ask you. When you're, when you're getting told no, 
and you're getting rejected and you're failing. You're failing forward. Clearly, it sounds like you continue to fail forward. Uh, what mindset did you employ? Because that's a like you said, most people crumble and and move on to something else. Yeah. So, in essence, you will be what you will to be. You will be what you will to be. And so, if you can will it to be, you know that you're on the right track. And if you know that every no gets you closer to a yes. And every no, if thought about through a feedback loop of self-improvement, that that gets you to a higher propensity to that the next decision will be a yes, that, that'll, that'll take care of the motivation. But you've got to be logical about it. You can't be emotional about it. Like, like there's so many people in our, in our society, we talk about you know, our kids, that they let the emotions dictate what their minds do instead of having their minds tell their emotions how to feel. And it's just, it's just, it's the inversion of what the way it should be. And so I just kind of put on my, my killer hat, right? I'm, I'm ready to go. Think about, think about Kobe Bryant, the Mamba mentality. Like mm -hmm. that's the sort of thing that, that we need to be thinking about. And that's the sort of thing that I kind of put my play, myself into whenever I would go into a, a negotiation or, or a business development. Now, now things have changed a little bit. I, I'm, I'm not as aggressive as I used to be. Um, I'm more conversational, more related to people because I'm interested in building long-term relationships. But when I was young and hungry, man, we had bills to pay. You know, I had I had a wife in school, and we we just had we flat out had bills to pay. So I'm gonna go out there, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna come away with the business if I can. And you're taking those lessons, those failures, you call them the the no's, the 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 door closings. You're taking every one of those situations, and you could only learn from it when you have that kind of mentality. Like, like here's another lessons learned. Oh, here's something I might do a little different next time. Oh, this didn't really work. I should have reflecting. I probably should have used this approach. I would imagine that using the rejections for lessons learned goes a long way. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it said that it said that sometimes you win, sometimes you learn, and that's what you alluded to that great John Maxwell quote, which I love. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to realize that if we're contemplative about what we've done and what kind of mistakes we've made, we can get better. But if we just keep hitting our heads against against a wall, we're just going to we're just going to get beat up in the process. And so we have to we have to realize who we are. I think it's it's said that if you're a, if you're an anvil, be prepared to be hit. But if you're a hammer, be prepared to strike. Like you, like you got to realize who you are and what position you're in. And if you're an entrepreneur, you're a hammer. You got to, you've got to be able to hit stuff and break stuff, but you also be able to take some hits yourself. And so I think that's really, really important. Um, and there's something, there's something about the will, the will that that pushes you through the the, the experience of failing. It said, it said that the will masters time; it conquers space. That somehow, whenever we get our will out there. And we invoke our will in certain cer cer certain situations that that has a cascading effect throughout not only your organization, but other organizations and other lives over time. Like it, it, it super intends time. Um, it's also said that the will is the offspring of the deathless soul. Um, a great poet once put it. And if we can if we can think about it in terms of that, that whatever sort of efforts we put out into the world, that those efforts propagate and they, they last longer than our our actual lives are that there's something something eternal about them. We realize that what we're working on isn't, you know, it isn't fruitless. It it it, it can it can last. And not only 
monetarily wise for the next generation, but we can help other people learn as well. And so that's what I think what's really great about podcasts like yours, Nate. I learned so much that, you know, if, if I can learn from the failures of other people, like it's going to save me from making a lot of mistakes. Mm. You mentioned the hammer. Uh, the entrepreneur has got to be the hammer. So there's a lot of people that don't know if they're entrepreneurs. It may be a process. But what are some signs that you are definitely not? I mean, there is a lot of people that want to be, but let's just be honest. They don't have the core competencies to be an entrepreneur. What are some signs for folks taking the negative approach? Hey, if you're this, this, and this, it doesn't look good for you in, in the entrepreneurial space. Yeah, so th th this comes from a great uh, little line by Edwin Markham, a poet, that, that said that when you're the anvil, you must bear it. When you're the hammer, you must strike. And, and it's something to the effect of you have to realize who you are, who your identity in, is, and then you have to then act that identity out, right? And so I think that from the entrepreneur's standpoint, I think you're both the anvil. Like you're the thing, you're, you're, that, you're that hard piece of metal that the hammer strikes, and there's something in between there. Maybe you're forging a sword, something like that. But the anvil takes the weight, takes the bearance of, of the power of the hammer, that sometimes you're the anvil. Sometimes you're just getting beat up. Um, but sometimes you're the you're the one that's doing the beating up. You're the you're the you're the striker. You're the hammer. And so, I think for the entrepreneur realizing that you're never all one or the other. That that it's a it's a reciprocating effect. It's a reciprocating effect that that might be something like whenever I'm having communication with my team members, I realize that that I am the one that's that's doing the leading and the coaching. I must do some service, but I almost. I also must do the leading there. But whenever I'm speaking to someone that's more capable uh, than me, I must realize that I'm the student and, and they're the teacher. Like you've, you've got to realize the perspective of the roles. You're not always the student. You're not always the teacher. That and sounds so like I a social – that sounds like a, a, an emotional intelligence, social awareness component. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You have to realize where your role – like every, everything's in context. Right. I, like there's there's a time for us to bomb Hiroshima. It's not now. It was 100 years ago. Like the, everything is in is in context. Um, and, and so the personalities, the relationships, the content, it, it all it's all intertwined. I think that's really why we, we've, we've got to we've got to be reading. We've got to be learning. We've got to be growing. Is there a personality trait or traits, though, back to the question that. If you see something or you, you employ these kind of traits and characteristics, you got to really either fix them and, and change them or else move on to something non-entrepreneurial. And if so, what are they? Yeah. So if, if you're unable to, to assess that feedback loop of why you keep failing, everyone fails. Everyone fails. If you're unable or unwilling to, to look at that feedback loop and, and look at yourself, why you failed, it's, it's, it's mostly your problem. It's, it's mostly your fault. And you've got to be able to take responsibility. If you're able to do that, you're able to fix it. Um, you not only have a problem being an entrepreneur, you're not going to be successful, but you probably also have a humility and a heart problem. Mm. It's, 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 it, gets, it gets more, it gets deeper down than just what your, your occupation is. And so I think, I think that's certainly the first thing that you want to look at. Um, and, and so you, you, you need to address that on two, two different levels. Number one, your occupation as an entrepreneur. Number two, the condition of your heart, your inability to be able to uh, – to be the, the ego is be, the enemy, isn't it? It's always the enemy. It's always the enemy. And, yeah. and, the, and, the, pride, and the, pride, the prideful man will always say that your observation of my failure is just because you don't understand genius. 
they never take the brunt of the failure upon themselves. And so when you're able to realize that and, and, and accept the fact that you make a mistake, you're never going to be able to make adjustments to that mistake. And, and so how, how inspiring that, that's, is it? That's the role of the prideful man. Yeah, I'm sorry. How inspiring is it too, Rick, when the CEO, when the founder, when the leader sits in the room and raises his or her hand and says, this one's on me. I failed. I This is my shortcoming. I could have done something better, even, even if he or she really wasn't fully responsible and others were responsible. That's got to be – those are one of those traits where you – I know leadership's a big thing for you. That's got to be something that really inspires the, the the people that work for you. Yeah, yeah. You certainly have to admit when you're making mistakes, and 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 honestly, every mistake that happens throughout the entire company by any employee is the fault of the of the leader. There's there's you know there there's always a buck that stops somewhere, and it always stops with the, with the senior most leader there. And from from the client side, for instance, like if you're servicing, no matter what your industry is, if you're doing a B two B service and there's a business on the other side of your of your client the client's responsibility is if you're not performing is to fire you and so there's some sort of person on the other side where the buck starts with them if you're not performing the service and so there's multiple involved there but it's got to stop, stop with the ceo or the or the managing director or whatever your derivative role is because someone's got to be in charge and and so if you're unwilling to, to take take the take the brunt of that take the anvil of that you're in the you're in the wrong role, and yeah. I think I think you see a lot of weak leaders using that CEO title incorrectly. Incorrectly, they're using the title in order to gain the prominence and the stature and the leadership that they're unwilling and unable to accrue through natural leadership skills. I think we and might so have I to think, change I, that, I think, Rick. We may have to change it to a chief emotional officer. <laughs> Maybe that's more fitting. <laughs> I lo- I'm gonna I'm gonna try that. I'm gonna try that. That's, but it goes that. back to we're, we're we're dropping some quotes from people Maxwell and some others. I'll drop one. This reminds me of extreme ownership, as Jocko Willink says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love I love Jocko. Yeah. If if you don't own it, it's not yours, right? Mm. If it's if you're not going to own the responsibility in your business, it's not really your business, right? And and let me let me let me let me add something to that as well. There's a there's a corollary like life is just a bunch of paradoxes, things that you say that they look, they appear to be opposites, but they're both true. Um, and so there's also a line from Lewis that says that nothing that you've not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing that you've not given away will ever really be yours. Like how does that play when you think about authority and responsibility and power? Like, do you really want to be the CEO making every single decision aside of, a 400 person company? No, that's a miserable life. That's a miserable life, but you've got to be able to give it away, but you also have to have the ability to understand that you own it. So to own it, but also to give it away, like that's the very paradox of leadership. Mm. That's beautiful. So you, your personal situation, did you end up selling that first business that you built in the twenties? No, so we we spun it out into commercial business, uh, eventually becoming a company called CXRE, and uh, we split that business off with another company that we started called Green Efficient, which is a federal business. Uh, my dad actually owns 100% of that business now. Uh, maybe a couple of years ago, we made that change, and so he's running that business. I'm running the CXRE business with with a great uh, team of folks, and then we have the strategic uh, capital business, and so that, that keeps keeps us pretty busy. And then how about the global nonprofit that you got involved with in your 30s? Talk to us about that. 
Yeah, so I stayed there for about a decade. Um, it was a um, missionary nonprofit type of organization, staffed in 53 countries. So we were dealing with all sorts of things with, you know, hundreds of different languages, hundreds of different people groups, and it had some scalability issues there. And so we had, when I came in around 800 or so uh, team members across those 53 countries, weren't able to get the job done uh, from my perspective. And so I eventually became um, uh, vice chairman and then chairman of that organization. And uh, we were able to scale the business up to 2,100, 2,300 team members uh, over that over that decade. And, and what we had to fix were two things. First thing we had to do is we had to fix uh, the fundraising mechanism behind it. And so we were we went from fundraising over maybe five or six cities. So we went to fundraising nationwide. And we had a cycle of 36 different major markets that we would do events and, and handle fundraising uh, work in through a, a professional uh, development team. And the second thing we had to fix is, is this problem that the British Navy dealt with for a long time where people like to build their own little kingdoms. Like they want to they want to advertise, I have this many people in my company or I have this many people that report to me or look at the size of my organization. And so you get to this idea where the more layers I have, the more people I have under my, my purview, the more important I am. And I'm going to tell people about that in cocktail parties and at church. I'm using it on my, on my LinkedIn profile. And we, we try to find our self-worth through that building of our own little mini kingdom. But that mini kingdom doesn't really benefit any, anyone but ourselves. So we have to be able to, to release that. And so that's one of the things that we had to, we had to work through at that organization. Hmm. Uh, it had been around for, I don't know, 20 years or so before I, I even arrived. Is there something different in, in the business world, something that maybe works really well? And that allows you to be successful that doesn't translate when you're dealing with a, a 501c3 uh, charity opportunity? And if so, what, what would that be? Yeah, so it, it's it's certainly one of these paradoxical types of things. It's, it's the balance of I, I have to be a servant, but I also have to be a leader, right? I, I've got to be the person willing to lay down my life and my, my work and my schedule for my coworkers if they need me. But I also have to be willing to go and, and, and face and do battle with the people that are outside the organization. The Drucker mm -hmm. said that the, the role of the CEO is to be the bridge between the internal and the exterior of the, of the organization. But in nonprofit, I can't, I can't be 50-50. I've got to be something like 95% servant, 5% leader. Mm -hmm. And the leader looks a little bit, the leadership role looks a little bit different than it would in a business, right? I have to, I cannot assert my authority, my responsibility on others. I have to do it conversationally. It happens over a much, much longer period of time. That's why, you know, scaling an organization like that took a decade. I could do that in a business in a year or two, but it takes a decade in a nonprofit. Things just move so much slower. That's that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a little more of a passive, soft approach, I would imagine, on the charity side. That makes a lot of sense. I want to get to this because uh, this is really neat. I've seen some of your interviews now that you're doing online. And uh, this isn't uh, this isn't Hugh Hefner's mansion, is it? No, no. We had the swimming pool and the diving board, and we've got <laughs> we've got all the accoutrements to it. Yeah. So is that where is that being is that being recorded out of your home, or where is that taking place? So I do not live in the mansion. Um, I have it's a it's a for everyone that doesn't know it's a thirteen thousand five hundred square foot uh, mansion, stone mansion, just outside of Houston on four acres. It's a four acres enclosed compound. And we've got a one acre lake here. It's, it's really, it's really pretty nice. And uh, we've got a 7,000 square foot lounge space uh, down on the first floor. And then I have our family offices and our investment team up on the second floor. Uh, we have other offices as well, but uh, so this is where we kind of where we hang out. And uh, we, as of right now, we don't really, 
letting one else come and use it. We're, we're in some conversations with the folks, let other people come and rent it. Uh, but basically, we do a bunch of fundraisers here. We're, we're throwing a friend's uh, baby shower uh, later on this week, and uh, we do a lot of nonprofit events here. And so we just we just enjoy being here. That's great. That's great. So, yeah, we're, we're talking here, Conversations at the Mansion. You can find it everywhere online, YouTube especially. You've had some big names. You've had Donald Trump Jr. You've had Ben Car- Dr. Ben Carson, uh, Lee Greenwood, maybe a few. Other. Who are some of the others, too, that you've had on? Yeah, yeah. So we've had uh, U.S. Senator Mike Lee out of Utah. We've had uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, the former Navy SEAL, uh, American hero. Uh, we've had Jonathan Pajot, which is a is a, a rising star. If you've seen any Jordan Peterson stuff, he's he's pretty close friends with Jordan Peterson. He's been on a lot of the uh, Daily Wire stuff recently. Mm. Um, just just a, just a handful of really good folks. Uh, former CEO of Burger King, Continental Airlines, uh, David Weekly. Uh, you know, we've we've had some some pretty pretty uh, pretty good sized heavy hitters here. And, and it's funny, Nate, this, this started, I had, when we, when we built this mansion, we had, I had my assistant sitting next to our marketing director and the marketing director was saying like, everyone's doing this online content thing and doing interviews. Like we got to get Rick out there. We got to get him involved doing interviews. And my assistant was like, well, she was telling her like who I'd go to lunch with during the week and you know, who my friends were. And she was like, you think we could interview any of those people? And so everyone we've interviewed has been a friend or a friend of a friend. Oh, wow. And, uh, it just, it just, it's been a lot of fun. And we've done some crazy things. You know, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, us and a film crew there. But like the, like the, the Don Trump Jr. one was just complete and utter insanity because we had Secret Service here. Um, mm-hmm. We saw Secret Service protection. And we did it as a nonprofit uh, fundraiser. Right? So I told him, if you guys come, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll pay for everything. So we had, you know, open bar, passed wine. We had valet services, Secret Service there. They were, they were there for five days actually doing dry runs. No and, kidding. Um, wow. So wow. it was just it was just complete and utter insanity. And then we had a if you know anything about kind of video production, I think we had a six camera setup with that. And it was just a, it was just a blast. It's amazing. It a blast. It's very well done, super professional, really crisp, great content. Uh you guys we'll, we'll link it in the show notes so people can go find it. Uh conversations at the mansion. We actually just had a fundraiser at my parents' house earlier this week for um, a guy running for U.S. Senate here in Ohio. His name's Bernie Marino. Businessman in Cleveland, retired, sold his car dealerships. I think he's bored, so he's looking for something to do and give back to the community. So he wants to run for Senate. Uh, J.D. Vance was there. He's their current senator here in Ohio. And uh, Kerry Lake came as well to the event. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, was a was an amazing turnout. So I think we're you and I are probably pretty aligned when it comes to politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the ba- the baby shower we're hosting uh, here in a couple of days is actually for one of my wife's really good friends, uh, whose husband is a member of, member of Congress, and and it's 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 been it's been pretty pretty incredible just to kind of have folks kind of come in and out and and hang out, and so it's been great. Carrie Carrie Lake Carrie Lake's not going away. I mean, no, she's, she's not. She's and around she, for, for the I gotta tell you, I, I don't want to. This is not, don't take my word for it, but at our fundraiser, we had 130 people at the house. Um, and she kind of implied, I'll say that she's going to be running for the Senate seat now in Arizona, um, next wow. time. So wow. we'll see what Good happens. That governor race was a little fishy and, um, I, she, she's not going anywhere. She's going to be a force to be reckoned with for a while. There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you, I think you've got something to worry about there where, Potentially half of the American citizenry thinks that the election process can't be trusted. 
Mm. I think that's a that's a really difficult issue that we're going to have to deal with. I think 2024 is going to be really crucial to see if we can turn out the vote just across the board, because it, it could be tragic if people don't show up because they don't trust the electoral system. What's your mission, Rick, at this point in your life? What's your mission with all this between your business and and now the the podcast? You, you're kind of got your hand involved in a bunch of different things. What's your goal through all this? Yeah. So so there's two ways of looking at goals. First thing is, is like, what, what do you want to do? Um, I, I'm a little bit contrarian when it comes to that. I'm, I'm more about who I want to become. And so the person I want to become is someone that's passionate, disciplined and wise, passionate, disciplined and wise. Nate, um, I, I, I'm not that naturally of a passive, passionate person. Um, I'm not that naturally of a disciplined person. I'm not that wise of a person, but I want to become those three things. And so I think if I can if I can get across to my kids and to my wife and the people that are closest to me that, yeah, dad was someone that that really aspired. He never attained those three things. So those three things are possible to attain, but he aspired to be those three things. Then I think that's really where I'm trying to go. And if I can help some people you know, along the way, just like you're doing, I, I think that the more the merrier. Mm, that's beautiful. And for everyone that's listening or watching, take some notes from Rick. Take some notes on humility. You notice there, he, he doesn't take, he's not braggadocious. There's a lot of people out there that may be successful and then they're real arrogant and braggadocious. And it, it's, there's always something that falls a little short with me. So I think humility is one of the most powerful characteristics and, and traits that one can possess, especially when they have been successful. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that's really tough because I'm a naturally prideful person. There you and go. So you got to, you got to <laughs> beat it up every single day because you're going to need the pride at some point to come to the defense of someone or something that you love. Mm. And so you've got to become in the Jordan Peterson, Peterson phrase, you've got to be able to become the dragon at some point and just completely obliterate or annihilate a problem that's in your way. But the man under restraint is the most powerful of them all because no one is ever aware of the full capacity and the full efficacy of his power. That's perfectly said. Rickwalker.com is the website. Where else can people find you, Rick? Uh, online, social media, et cetera. Yeah, Nate. So I, I love Twitter, YouTube. Just handles is is Rick Walker text, TX. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm around. I'm around. That's beautiful. And we'll make sure that we link it up in the show notes. Uh, last question for you. Who do you want on the show that hasn't sat next to you yet? Wow. Wow. One person. So, one person. Yeah, I would I would say I would say Jordan Peterson. I think he's he's kind of he's kind of the big get for I think for a lot of people. How, how about you, Nate? I want to know what you think. Who who you'd like to have? I would love uh I would love Patrick Bet David. Oh yeah. He has really been on the scent recently. I, I, of course, he was on, he's on Rogan what last week. Yeah, he's everywhere now. His his company's really blowing up. Uh, Valuetainment and his podcast, PBD Podcast, and he's everywhere. He just did a town hall with Vivek Ramaswamy. I don't know if you saw that, but he's I did not not yet. Yeah, it was it's good. You should check it out. It's all over YouTube, obviously. Um, yeah, I think he would be the top one. So hey, yeah. listen. Oh, he. Hey, hey, you and you and I. Maybe we'll both make this happen. That that's our goal over the next twelve months, Rick. I'm going to task you to get Peterson, and I naturally you're going to task me to get Bet David, and let's see if we can make it happen. 
That's still that's a deal, Nate. And you know what? Maybe we can do the four of us on a round table thereafter. But we'll go baby steps first. So. That'd be great. That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. Hey, uh, Rick, fascinating stuff. Continued success to you. I appreciate it, Nate. Thanks so much for all you're doing. Sure appreciate it.